thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm so glad that you've joined me today for this episode. As I said last week, we're going to look at how Christians approach these questions of authority in our legal system in light of our discussion over recent weeks about author Leff's analysis of the alternatives for an ethical legal system that produces laws that we ought or should obey. If you'll recall, he had said that if there is a God such as the Bible, then you have an evaluator of ethical situations who's unquestioned, and because he's the creator, his processes for the articulation of laws that ought to be obeyed can't be questioned. But if you eliminate God from your cosmology, then how do you answer the playground bully question, says who, when a legislative body or a judge pronounces a certain law and says you should obey it? Now, the question is, in this cosmology, how should Christians respond? So what I'm going to do today is look at the issue of transgenderism and how it would have been addressed under a biblical cosmology and how it is being addressed by so many Christians in the legal jurisprudential policy field and compare how Christians today are responding to that issue to a brief that I just filed in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on the transgender issue. Now, if you are interested in getting a copy of this brief after I describe some of what it is that we're doing in the brief, uh, send us an email to info at factn.org. That's info at factn.org. Ask for a copy of the Sixth Circuit Brief, and we will email it to you. So let's go back to the days of the old biblical cosmology that was found in common law. And common law is important, as I've stressed over and over and over again, sort of ad nauseum, because most people today don't understand it. Many lawyers, if not most today, don't understand it. And as a result, we're just in a mess, to put it bluntly. But in any event, let me, let me proceed. Now, transgenderism was not a problem under the common law, not at least at the time of William Blackstone, who's Commentaries on the laws of England uh, are 
probably considered the foremost exposition of the common law that was available to our founding fathers. The Supreme Court quotes William Blackstone all the time. And, and obviously, he didn't address transgenderism in his commentaries published in 1765. But what he did write is important to understand how far away we've gotten from what we once believed was true about the foundations of law, the nature of law. And I want to read a section of that for you. In the early chapters of his book, William Blackstone says, Upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, depend all human laws. And I need to pause there for just a moment. The law of nature began to be changed, or excuse me, I should say the conception of the law of nature began to be changed in the 1700s as the Enlightenment philosophers began to remove God from the cosmos. So natural laws were laws like gravity, right? They ceased to have any transcendent authority related to man and society. They just operated upon matter infused with energy. Okay, so Blackstone here is still holding on to the old conception of the law of nature. And he says that it's on the law of nature and the law of revelation that all human laws depend. He continues, that is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. He adds, there are, it is true, a great number of indifferent points in which both the divine law and the natural leave a man at his own liberty. Now, remember last week when we were talking about when can the Constitution be our God, Leff had pointed out, well, the problem with the Constitution being our God is, is what happens when there are gaps in the law. And that's what Blackstone's talking about here. He says there are some things that are points of indifference between the divine law and the natural law that leaves us at, at, at liberty. And he continues, though, but which are found necessary for the benefit of society to be restrained within certain limits. So, for example, we have speeding laws. Um, we need to have uh, laws for the safe conduct on our, our, our highways so we can drive on the left side of the road in the United States, the right side of the road in England. We can have driver's side, the left side of the cars here. Uh, you can have it on the right side in England. All kinds of things to which the law would be indifferent other than you just can't drive however you like on the on the roads, okay, because that would lead to chaos. And he says that it is here that human laws have their greatest force and efficacy because they're things of indifference. And if everybody did what he wanted to do, it'd be a mess, right? But, he says, with regard to such points as are not indifferent, we'll come back to that in just a moment, human laws are only declaratory of and act in subordination to the former. So if there are points 
about which the law cannot be indifferent, then when the legislature enacts a law or when the judge issues a judgment, he says, well, they are only declaring essentially what the law already was. Now, let me explain a little bit what he's saying. And I'm going to use now a quote from an opinion written by a judge of the Tennessee Supreme Court back in 2010 in regard to the common law and statutes. Okay? And he says this, and this is interesting, the General Assembly is presumed to know the state of the existing law when it enacts legislation. This presumption includes the General Assembly's knowledge of the state of the common law when it enacts legislation. Thus, legislative acts are construed with reference to the common law. Why? It's the pre-existing law. It's the law they should already know. It's the thing that, that already informs our moral decisions. Okay. And they should not, the statute should not, be construed to displace the common law any further than they are expressly declared or necessarily imply. So that's what Blackstone is kind of getting at here, that on matters about which the law, the, the law of nature, the law of God, cannot be indifferent, the legislature is presumed to already know that, and to enact its statute is merely declaring what we already know to be true. And then he gives us an example. This is important. To instance, in the case of murder, this is expressly forbidden by the divine and demonstrably by the natural law. Uh, even if we didn't have the divine law, we'd say murdering people is not good, right? We wouldn't need to have a scientific study to say, it turns out that murder is not really good over the long haul. Uh, we've been doing some longitudinal studies here, and we've determined that murdering people uh, is not good for society. No, it's, a, it's, it's demonstrably uh, forbidden by the natural law. And he continues, and from these prohibitions, the ones that already exist, the ones that exist by natural law, the ones that exist because we've been told they exist by divine law, from these prohibitions arises the true unlawfulness of this crime. There is an unlawfulness to the crime that precedes any declaration by the legislature of a murder statute. Those human laws that annex a punishment to it do not at all increase its moral guilt or superadd any fresh obligation. Oh, we passed a murder statute, so now you better not murder people. But boy, if we didn't have that statute, I guess you'd be free to murder people. No, and it doesn't add any fresh obligation. And then he adds this, nay. If any human law should allow or enjoin us to commit it, we are bound to transgress that human law, or else we must defend both the natural and the divine. Now, in part, there is the notion of the rescue efforts. 
In Tennessee, we recently had the federal government come after some folks who had uh, gone into an abortion clinic to, to stop the abortions, and they were arrested. But uh, but William Blackstone would have said, well, under the common law, if you know people are going to be murdered inside, you, you, you need to get engaged here. You're bound to, to transgress the human law that's allowing murder. Okay, that should be some evidence of how upside down and backwards we have it since we've departed from the common law and the biblical cosmology that undergirds it. Now, with Blackstone having said that, I want to read a brief or an excerpt from a brief submitted in a lawsuit in the Sixth Circuit involving the laws in Kentucky and Tennessee prohibiting doctors from, um, what would be the word, from administering procedures that would mess up a child's endocrine system or their reproductive organs, okay, essentially pushing them towards sterilization as whether it's a boy or a girl. Okay, now, here is what this leading national multi-million dollar a year pro-family organization had said on its behalf in its brief. Now, I worded that a specific way because the organization didn't write their own brief. They hired a lawyer to write the brief. But you would hope the organization would read their brief. And to the extent they did, you would hope that they would have read what I'm about to read to you and might have said, whoa, I don't want that in a brief with my name on it. Here's the first sentence of the two-sentence summary of the brief that was filed. Given the mounting evidence that these sterilizing interventions harm children and the absence of any long-term studies demonstrating their safety and effectiveness, the Kentucky law is necessary to protect children. Now, did you pick up what they were saying? They are saying, well, you know, there's evidence, growing evidence, that sterilizing a child is harmful. But we don't even have any long-term studies on all the complications that might arise, so perhaps it would be good to have a state law that stops this. Now, l let me just paraphrase what William Blackstone might have said. He said, well, there are points of human law, there are points of law that about which you cannot be indifferent. What does it mean to be a male? What does it mean to be a female? And whether or not we are male and female for any principled reason that might have to do with procreation. Hmm. So, in the case of messing up and disordering a child's endocrine system and their reproductive organs so that they would be sterilized, 
Why, this is expressly forbidden by the divine and demonstrably the natural law. And from these prohibitions arises the true unlawfulness of the crime of disordering a child's endocrine system and reproductive organs. Any statute would not increase its moral guilt of doing that or add any fresh obligation on anybody not to do that. Nay, if any human law should allow or enjoin us to commit the sterilization of children, we are bound to transgress that human law, or else we must offend both the natural and the divine. You see the difference? They, they have conceded that there is no truth about what it means to be human and what we are for, and we need to have science to tell us if sterilizing a child is harmful. Now, pardon me, my friends, but this seems to be having conformed their thinking to the way of the world. Now, I don't know. Maybe the organization's leadership never read that statement. But it's there, and it's their brief. And I think you need to know that that's what some of our largest leading institutions in the pro-family world are submitting on your behalf. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you another example. This, by another well-known pro-family advocate. Again, the brief was filed. Now, there's much that's good in this brief about the fact that parents have rights and that parents owe duties to their children, and they lay out all that general framework, and then they get to the transgender procedure medicine treatment itself. Okay, so now here's the part where they're taking the general statement, and they're going to apply it to the transgender thing itself. Here's what the brief says. When making health care decisions for their children, parents exercise an individual right that their children lack capacity to exercise. This parental right is, at its core, derivative from, and therefore no stronger than, a child's own right to consent to an available procedure. Okay, now what's interesting here is that they're saying the parent's right is derived from the child's right. Now what's ironic is part of that, in the brief, they had said what the common law actually said, that the parent's rights correspond to and are grounded in the duties they owe their child, not the rights the child has. So the question would become, if you're Arthur Leff, well, what rights does the child have? And you've agreed that whatever rights the child have, you can have. And whatever rights the child doesn't have, well, you can't have as a parent. So you haven't answered the question, where does the right come from? And what does it respond to? So instead of saying the right of the parents responds to the duties the parents owe, they're saying the parents' rights 
rest on the rights of the of the child, which just moves the issue further down, but begs the question of duties. Then notice they add to that. Conversely, a parent's rights to make decisions for his daughter can be no greater than his rights to make medical decisions for himself. Okay, well, this is great. Now, if the parent, the adult, has the right to go and say, would you please castrate me so I can become a woman? My, my body is healthy, but uh, I, I want to become a woman. Would you mess up my endocrine system and remove my reproductive organs? Well, if, if, if we concede the, the adult can do it, well, I, I guess that means since the adult could do it, then the child, if an adult, could do it, so the parent can consent for the child to do it. You see, the problem that we're facing is that we're approaching all of this not as if this is a fundamental wrong to mess up healthy reproductive systems because we are reproductive beings, and, and to, to authorize that goes against our nature. It goes against the natural law. It goes against the divine law. It goes against everything that our society has been built on for hundreds of years and throughout societies in multiple nations over time. And so, you know, if you're going to concede that the adult can do it, well, now you've just put yourself in the box that says, well, if the adult could do it, then the adult can concede for the child to do it. It's just, oh, I, I don't know if it bothers you as much as it bothers me, and maybe I haven't explained it very well, but it, it bothers me. Now, in contrast to this, and this is how I want to close today, and I'll, and I'll be brief. I worked with a friend of mine to submit a brief to the Sixth Circuit. As a friend of the court, this is the brief you can request if you want to. Send us an email to info at factn.org, and we'll send you a link to it. Or if you don't have uh, email, you can call us 615-591-2090. Um, Leave us a message. We'll put one in the mail to you. But, but this is what we filed, and you'll see how it is different from what you've just heard. Quote, the contest in this case referring obviously to this transgender case involving the Kentucky and Tennessee laws, raises questions as to whether there is a human nature, whether male and female are objective conditions of identity that state law may recognize. You don't get to self-identify, and we didn't create what you are that there is an objective condition of identity that state law may recognize. And then we continue on. And whether the state may protect vulnerable children within its borders from the medical manipulation of persons' sexed bodies in furtherance of that denial. See, what we're trying to say is, can the law just deny that there is anything true about what it means to be human, and, and can they protect children from medical procedures that further this denial that there's anything true about who we are? You see how that sounds different? It doesn't just sound different. It is different. We continue on in the brief. 
In sum, the fundamental issue for this court is whether states may refuse the novel proposal by some in society that a child is a blank construct for self-identification and medical manipulation and may also refuse the consequences to law and society that will come once such a radical departure from an objective human nature and historic community precept is made normative. Now, let me repeat that last part again. So the first thing we said there is whether the state can refuse this novel proposition that we're not male and female, and there's a reason for that, and it has to do with, in principle, we're productive beings. Can can we refuse the idea that, no, 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 that's not, that's not true. We're just blank slates, and we get to self-identify ourselves, okay? But the second part of that statement, let me read it again. May the state refuse the consequences to law and society that will come once such a radical departure from an objective human nature and historic community precept is made normative. In other words, once you establish that we are, in fact, denatured, non-sexed, non-procreative beings, and that is our fundamental identity, and we can shift and change and move those objective things around because everything is now subjective, you have essentially departed from everything that our legal system was built on, which I just demonstrated at the top of the podcast in the Blackstone quote. In other words, we're trying to say to the court, this is not just some technical issue of, well, this is just another medical treatment like removing your tonsils or a diseased liver or a lung transplant. No, this is different from all of those things because it is not trying to restore health to a sick body. It is taking a healthy body and making it sick. And if you want to change this understanding of what human nature is all about, then you've changed everything that everything in our society and our legal structure has been built upon. And you better be careful about what you do because it will ripple through everything just as the Obergefell decision on same-sex marriage in 2015 has rippled through everything and brought us now to the place of transgenderism. And why? Homosexuality itself is a denial of any given human nature and the importance of the sexed body. Transgenderism is just the next logical progression of this self-identifying without regard to bodies and their sex to natures. And the Christian community gave up on that issue in 2015 after the Obergefell decision and thought we can just protect religious liberty and we didn't pay attention to what all was coming on. Or excuse me, some of us did, but most did not. And now we're here. And for me, it's clear why we're here. Because the Christian too has given up the idea that there is a reality about what it means to be human and male and female as, and, and male and female for reproductive purposes. No, we have to have some science tell us if sterilizing children is harmful. And that's where we are in America today. Well, I'm going to stop here. Next week, 
I want to come back to a final point in the left article, and I hope you'll find it as fascinating as I do. And uh, I'll look forward to being with you next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.